Welcome to the Campus Preacher Podcast. I'm your host, Keith Darrell. This is episode 20, The Old Cross and the New and Religious Pluralism. went forth to sow, bearing precious seed in his hand, hoping and hope that he might see it grow. Welcome, everybody, to the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network, FLFnetwork.com. If you want to check us out on the World Wide Web, I'm Keith Darrell. This is the Campus Preacher Podcast, and... This is a podcast designed to encourage and equip you in the work of evangelism. And in today's uh, podcast, what we're going to discuss, I'm going to look at an old article by a gentleman by the name of A.W. Tozer, who helped get me through college by reading this article. And I think it will help orient us in our work of evangelism, especially as I'm going to, um, you know, over the last few weeks, we've been discussing uh, the nature of Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 9, as well as uh, the kind of the historical argument for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And uh, the minute you're going to get into evangelism, inevitably you're going to have to address the idea of religious pluralism. Now, religious pluralism is just the I- idea. There, there are two ways to look at this. Um, one is a simple description. If you look at America today, we have a plurality. We have many, many, many different religions taking place here in the United States. And if you ever interact with a Roman Catholic, they will tell you that, uh, you know, pluralism is kind of the death knell of Protestantism, that you have so many different denominations of Protestant churches, and uh, that's a fundamental problem. So the idea of pluralism is a simple fact of our existence here in the United States, um, and it's been a simple fact since the fall that there has been a plurality of religions. And so we're going to have to discuss uh, why is one particularly true, and also, and, and we're going to have to discuss it from several different ways. And the main way uh, I want to address it is uh, more, uh, obviously, we're going to look at the intellectual aspect, but also rhetorically how we interact with people who might raise the objection uh, regarding the idea of religious pluralism. Um, but before we get into that, I want to look at an old A.W. Tozer article. This article is called uh, The Old Cross and the New. And I would say my, my sophomore year of college, I probably read this thing once a week, I would guess. And uh, part of the reason for that is, uh, so I was converted in 1993 and during my sophomore year. Uh, that was uh, that was just before my freshman year of college. And you get to college and there are things that you appreciate about the campus ministries. Um, but one of the things I, I quickly discovered is oftentimes I thought people were terrified to talk about repentance. They were ta- uh, kind of terrified to really talk about sin. It was all kind of, uh, don't you think life is kind of messy? Would you like to invite Jesus into your heart? He'll take care of uh, kind of your existential messy situation. And I think that's all true, and so I don't think we need to negate that aspect of uh, the reality of what the gospel does. It does put us to right, um, takes us out from idols and uh, serving idols and false gods and puts us under the authority of the living God, and that's a good thing, and it does uh, put the world right and put us right and cleans up our messes and helps orient us. Um, But ultimately, if you come to Jesus as a Savior from your sins and from the judgment of God and uh, from the idols, uh, you will ultimately be more satisfied in Him. And um, when I read this initially back in probably 1994, 1995, it just really kind of helped set a trajectory for my thinking on the gospel. So I want to read it here, and uh, this called uh, The Old Cross and the New by W. Tozer. All unannounced and mostly undetected, there has come in modern times a new cross into popular evangelical circles. It is like the old cross, but different. The likenesses are superficial, the differences fundamental. From this new cross has sprung a new philosophy of the Christian life, and from that new philosophy has come a new evangelical technique, a new type of meeting, and a new kind of preaching. This new evangelism employs the same language as the old, but its content is not the same, and its emphasis not as before. 
The old cross would have no truck with the world. For Adam's proud flesh, it meant the end of the journey. It carried into effect the sentence imposed by the law of Sinai. The new cross is not opposed to the human race. Rather, it is a friendly pal, and, if understood aright, it is a source of oceans of good, clean fun and innocent enjoyment. It lets Adam's it lets Adam live without interference. His life motivation is unchanged. He still lives for his own pleasure. Only now he takes delight in singing choruses and watching religious movies instead of singing body songs and drinking hard liquor. The accent is still on enjoyment, though the fun is now on a higher plane morally, if not intellectually. The new cross encourages a new and entirely different evangelistic approach. The evangelist does not demand abnegation of the old life before a new life can be received. He preaches not contrast, but similarities. He seeks to key into public interest by showing that Christianity makes no unpleasant demands. Rather, it offers the same thing the world does, only on a higher level. Whatever the sin-mad world happens to be clamoring after at its moment is cleverly shown to be the very thing the gospel offers. Only the religious product is better. The new cross does not slay the sinner, it redirects him. It gives him, uh, it, it gears him into a cleaner and jollier way of living and saves his self-respect. To the self-assertive, it says, come and assert yourself for Christ. To the egotist, it says, come and do your boasting in the Lord. To the thrill seeker, it says, come and enjoy the thrill of Christian fellowship. The Christian message is slanted in the direction of the current vogue in order to make it acceptable to the public. The philosophy back of this kind of thing may be sincere, but its sincerity does not save it from being false. It is false because it is blind. It misses completely the whole meaning of the cross. The old cross is a symbol of death. It stands for the abrupt, violent end of the human being. The man in Roman's time who took up his cross and started down the road had already said goodbye to his friends. He was not coming back. He was going to have it ended. The cross made no compromise, modified nothing, spared nothing. It slew all of the man, completely and for good. It did not try to keep on good terms with its victim. It struck cruel and hard, and when it had finished its work, the man was no more. The race of Adam is under a death sentence. There is no communion and no escape. God cannot approve any of the fruits of sin. However innocent, they may appear or beautiful to the eyes of men. God salvages the individual by liquidating him and then raising him again to newness of life. That evangelism which draws friendly parallels between the ways of God and the ways of men is false to the Bible and cruel to the souls of its hearers. The faith of Christ does not parallel the world, it intersects it. In coming to Christ, we do not bring our old life up into a higher plane. We leave it at the cross. The corn of wheat must fall into the ground and die. We who preach the gospel must not think of ourselves as public relations agents sent to establish goodwill between Christ and the world. We must not imagine ourselves commissioned to make Christ acceptable to big business, the press, the world of sports, or modern education. We are not diplomats, but prophets. And our message is not a compromise, but an ultimatum. God offers life, but not an improved old life. The life he offers is life out of death. It stands always on the far side of the cross. Whoever would possess it must pass under the rod. He must repudiate himself and concur in God's just sentence against him. What does this mean to the individual, the condemned man who would find life in Christ Jesus? How can this theology be translated into life? Simply, he must repent and believe. He must forsake his sins and then go on to forsake himself. Let him cover nothing, defend nothing, excuse nothing. Let him not seek to make terms with God, but let him bow his head before the stroke of God's stern displeasure and acknowledge himself worthy to die. Having done this, let him gaze with simple trust upon the risen Savior, and from him will come life and rebirth and cleansing and power. The cross that ended the earthly life of Jesus now puts an end to the sinner, and the power that raised Christ from the dead now raised him to a new life along with Christ. 
To any who may object to this or count it merely a narrow and private view of truth, let me say God has set his hallmark of approval upon this message from Paul's day to present. Whether stated in these exact words or not, this has been the content of all preaching that has brought life and power to the world through the centuries. The mystics, the reformers, the revivalists have put their emphasis here, and signs and wonders and mighty operations of the Holy Ghost gave witness to God's approval. Dare we, the heirs of such a legacy of power, tamper with the truth? Dare we, with our stubby pencils, erase the lines of the blueprint or alter the pattern shown us in the mount? May God forbid. Let us preach the old cross, and we will know the old power. That is... A.W. Tozer's The Old Cross and Anew from his work, Man, the Dwelling Place of God, which I believe is a compilation of articles uh, that he wrote. He was a, a Christian and Missionary Alliance uh, pastor, and he'd, uh, I believe, write a monthly article for their uh, denominational journal, and uh, that was one of them, I believe. Uh, but that's worth looking up, reading. Uh, I don't know if you want to commit it to memory or not, but uh, read through it a few times and uh, get that idea in your head. So when you do evangelism, uh, you want to go out with the power of the, I would identify properly, the old cross, um, and not the new, uh, where we just draw friendly parallels with the world. And um, and that's going to be important as we enter into a world of religious pluralism, uh, which we have here in the United States. And so tonight I want to introduce the idea, because when you go out and you evangelize, uh, the reality of it is you're going to come across a bunch of other religions, and part of your apologetic and part of your interaction of evangelism is explaining other religions. And um, this is actually, I think, a pretty fun study, or fascinating study. It's fun as well, and uh, we'll develop it biblically, uh, but what I want to accomplish uh, in today's episode is, is basically just lay the groundwork of uh, where we're going to go with it. Um, because as I kind of mentioned in the introduction, um, one, uh, you kind of have a description of uh, religious pluralism. It's very evident that we have Buddhists, Hindus, Muslims, uh, Krishna, Christians, Protestants, Catholics, Orthodox, etc., etc. And amidst all this plurality of beliefs, um, even some of you who are listening today, you know, I'm a Presbyterian, you're a Baptist, uh, there's a plurality there. And so what do we do with this pluralism and where do we draw our lines? Then from there, where do we, uh, you know, where do all these different religions come from? If there's one true one, is, is the, the simple fact there's all these different religions doesn't show that uh, man has invented of them. How do we know which one is right? And uh, kind of tied into the evangelistic aspect you're going to have to uh, get into is uh, even the more the emotional and intellectual appeal that is going on in the United States. And, it, and it's basically this. America is a secular nation, and part of that secularism is rooted in the Enlightenment. And it's a means, it's a little bit of a means to try to get everybody uh, to coexist, so to speak. So to speak. So if you think of that coexist bumper sticker, that might bother you. Uh, but the reality, the nature of the American system is that we would all coexist. We're not looking to, quote-unquote, privilege one religion over the other, um, but all of us can kind of have a certain level of freedom in certain realms and uh, certain ways. And I think if you look at the last 250 years, the United States, uh, roughly, there was a pretty close sense in which, you know, we, we kind of got along. I, I guess, well, I guess it all depends. We did have a civil war, so maybe we didn't always get along. Uh, but when everybody is kind of Christian and operating from a certain Christian paradigm, uh, there is a grain of truth to this idea of tolerance, and uh, we'll look at that a little bit more next week, uh, get into John Locke a little bit. Um, but what I want to do uh, today uh, is is more basic. Um, so probably about seven years ago, uh, 2012, I had a debate uh, with a professor 
at um, Iowa State University, and his name is Dr. Hector Avalos. And I was reading his books in preparation for the debate, and he actually had a really, really good uh, summary of why he, quote-unquote, appeals to pluralism. And this is one of the things that you need to get. And actually, a little bit earlier, I was reading a tweet that talked about uh, basically uh, of Christian supremacy. And I may have mentioned this story before, uh, but back in 2016, it was September of 2016, I think it was September 9th, and one of the reasons I remember it is because that following weekend, Hillary Clinton gave us the basket of deplorables comment. You know, they're racist, sexist, Islamophobes, homophobes, et cetera, et cetera. And then the following week, uh, our federal government came out with a report on peaceful coexistence. And I'll break that out in the weeks to come because I think some of the material there is pertinent for how we interact um, and how we're preaching the gospel to people and interact with people and kind of getting our apologetic and our rhetoric in uh, communicating with them. And, and the basic idea is this, and, and I, I'm glad Dr. Hector Avalos points this out because it's a reality um, that everybody faces. And as I've mentioned several times in this podcast, uh, the idea of hegemony, that there is going to be, ultimately, there is going to be something, some sort of supremacy in the culture. So September 9th, 2016, young man accuses me of Christian supremacy, which he defines as white male heteronormativity. And um, so white, racist, male, sexist, heteronormativity, I'm a homophobe. And uh, then I, I responded to him once he made that charge. You're out here preaching Christian supremacy. And I said, that's fine. I'll, I'm willing to accept all those charges if you're willing to admit, admit that you're preaching secular supremacy, which is black and androgynous homonormativity, who's a black homosexual. Um, you're out here preaching secular supremacy, which is black androgynous homonormativity. He said, well, I guess so. And, and so if you, if you realize rhetorically what he was doing, he was seeking to put me on the defensive by accusing me of Christian supremacy. And one of the worst things you could be is some sort of supremacist. What are you, a supremacist, white supremacist, Christian supremacist, whatever, Western supremacist. Um, rhetorically in our culture, to be accused of a supremacist in some way, shape, or form is a horrible thing because our culture has bitten the pluralist bug. And the idea is not that anybody's superior, you know, especially in the context of multiculturalism, not that any culture or any group is superior to any other, uh, but we're all equals and we all need to coexist and we all just need to learn to sit at the same table together and get along. And um, most of our differences are, are really superficial. Like all religions basically teach the same thing and our differences are uh, really superficial. And um, that, that's kind of the basic rhetoric of where we're coming from. But here's what uh, Dr. Hector Averroes says regarding um, uh, religious pluralism or, or just the idea of pluralism in a culture. And I, I think he's spot on. I'll explain this a little bit. So keep in mind that Dr. Avalos is an atheist and a humanist, and he's a pretty wicked man, actually. Um, but I think he lays it out well, logically and practically. He says this, All worldviews, even those that claim pluralism, are hegemonic. So again, hegemonic is just the idea that uh, there are pa- uh, kind of assumed power structures in any sort of social dynamic that end up guiding and controlling our assumptions, uh, and that we're not always self-conscious of these ideas that are governing and controlling us. So all worldviews, even those that claim pluralism, are hegemonic because they inevitably seek power over those that have a non-pluralistic worldview. So if you get what he's saying, it's very... So So the secularist who wants to accuse me of secular supremacy... Um, he might appeal to something like pluralism 
and say, look, we all need to go along. But what he's really doing is seeking to have power over me. And that's why I responded to one, the young man the way I did. Um, you know, I'm willing to accept the charge of Christian supremacy if you'll accept the charge of secular supremacy. Now suddenly we're at, at the very least in the middle of the field with the ball and we can have a discussion on quote unquote equal terms rather than uh, power plays over our rhetoric. And so um, that's one of the things I think are important. So uh, seek to have power over those who are non-pluralistic worldview. So pluralism does seek to have control over Christianity. The man with the coexist bumper sticker seeks to have control over all those religious beliefs. And he's saying, look, you guys play by these rules. You come under our authority. You can all sit at the table and get along with one another. And then he goes on to say this, a pluralistic religious hegemony, he's so wordy, a pluralistic religious hegemony is a politically expedient means to persuade people to adopt a secular humanist hegemony, which I believe holds the best prospect for a better global society. Phrased more frankly, religious pluralism is good so long as it does not interfere with secular humanism's goals. So that man is honest. He's like, nope, we want an absolute secular uh, humanistic society. We want secular humans to govern everybody. And until we get there, pluralism is good rhetoric to kind of break up the hegemony, break up the control of other groups and other people that come in. And that's even, uh, you know, it's a little bit tangential, uh, but even the idea of immigration, you know, you bring Muslims in, what, what, what should the Muslim do? Should, should we expect them to assimilate in some regard to Western values and Western ways of thinking and Western liberal democracy? If so, um, we're seeking to get them to adopt pluralism and a, actually a secular supremacy is what we're asking them to accept. And, and so the reality of it is when two different cultures uh, sit down at the table together, somebody's ideas are going to win out. And Dr. Avalos self-consciously knows that he wants secular uh, humanism to win out. And so you need to have that in your head as you seek to do evangelism because the person you're sitting down with who's going to accuse you of Christian supremacy and how do you know Christianity is true and bring up this idea of pluralism, we all need to get along, uh, you need to be able to even just have this uh, Dr. Avalos quote in your pocket to show that even secular society wants to control all other philosophies and bring all other philosophies under you. So when you're doing evangelism, saying that Jesus Christ has all authority under heaven and earth, you're not immoral. And that's going to be one of the, like, more of the psychological things you're going to have to work through. Like, oh, am I being immoral that I'm imposing my Christian beliefs on other people? No. The secular man wants to do it too. And the secular man that's telling you to, you know, kind of keep Jesus private and in your heart, he is calling you to repentance and faith into his secular supremacy, or if you're doing it under the name of Islam, uh, kind of that category. And so you need to realize that that is what's going on as we seek to do evangelism. So in the next few weeks, we're going to develop this idea more. Uh, we're going to look at a little bit, because it's, it's embedded in American society. Everybody here today, and especially if you're a Baptist and you spend a lot of time on the freedom of your conscience, and so everybody should be able to practice religion any way you want. The very nature of the First Amendment is, is a de facto pluralistic document. And I'm not saying we have to necessarily overturn the First Amendment, um, but we do have to realize that's the culture that we are embedded in. And when you raise your head up and begin to say that Christianity is true, uh, there are going to be, you know, culturally First Amendment issues. Are, what are you saying about the state? Are you saying that the, that the state owes their allegiance to Jesus? What are you saying culturally? And ultimately, we're saying everybody owes their allegiance to Jesus. Um, but I think even one of the cool things we'll also look at over the next few weeks is uh, what takes place at the Tower of Babel, the vision of uh, the nations. And I, I believe in, in some regard, uh, not totally, but in some regard, that's the beginning 
of all these different religions, and we'll, we'll develop those ideas more and how the other gods of the nations uh, play into this and where we're at today and how that ties into our evangelism. Uh, but I just wanted to introduce the idea of religious pluralism this week, um, and we're going to have to develop psychologically uh, more ourselves, and then from there as we're evangelizing, when people accuse us of arrogance or bigotry and things like that, uh, what we're going to be able to do is show rhetorically why those are kind of kind of initially have an appeal, but ultimately they're dissatisfying. Anyway, that's what we're going to be looking at next week and the weeks to come. Uh, and until then, if you have any questions, comments, demands, rebukes, exhortations, feel free to reach out to me at Keith at CampusReacher.com or on Twitter. Campus Evangel is my Twitter account. So may the Lord bless you. Keep you. that the harvest might well come before the bloom He runs on his way There's no time to be going slow Hurry, take what you've got, do with it what you can. Cause the good God in heaven needs us, so we're in the land. Some seed fell.